Welcome to Hashtag Skinthusiast, the podcast, a place for listeners to hear from the experts and soak in tangible tips to get that glow from the inside out. I'm Amy, a skincare educator, practicing dermatology PA, and beauty creator who bridges the gap between you and the industry. Listen in to the industry's top experts on everything from the best way to spot treat a pimple, which skincare ingredients we shouldn't be mixing, to the drugstore finds that are better than luxury price tags. We cover it all. Here, dermatologists, skincare experts, brand founders, and thought leaders will share their tips and tricks for all things beauty, skincare, and wellness. Think of hashtag Skinthusiasts like a coffee chat with the beauty gurus whose brains you've always wanted to pick. You won't get this kind of insight anywhere else. Your best skin is coming soon. Welcome back to another episode of Hashtag Skinthusiasts, the podcast. On this episode, I am doing a solo where I'm going to answer the most common questions I get on social media. These are the questions that sometimes need a little bit more time than just a story frame. So I hope that I'm able to give you a more in-depth answer on this episode. So let's get into it. Hello, hello. This is going to be a solo episode, one that I have been taking notes for for quite a long time now, based on the most common questions I get when I do Q&As on Instagram. So we're going to go through some of those questions today where I can kind of explain my answers in a little bit more depth so that you guys can understand my answers a little bit better. So we're going to start obviously with the obvious, which is skincare. The first question is, what is a retinoid alternative for pregnancy? And the short answer is that there isn't one. So there is not a true retinoid alternative, pregnant or not. I know we see a lot of marketing out there for retinoid alternatives, but they are truly a class of their own. And it's an ingredient that just has not been able to be replicated as far as efficacy. However, there are some things that you can do in your routine when pregnant, I believe, that can help support the skin so that you don't lose some of the hard work that you've maybe had with retinoids in the past. In general, I think pregnancy is a time to just support the skin, protect it, making sure you're using your vitamin C and your sunscreen every single day to help prevent hyperpigmentation. But there are things like peptides, bakuchiol, other ingredients that can be added into a routine that maybe you hadn't been using before. I personally use them in my routine now, even with using a retinoid. Now, it's important to note when it comes to pregnancy, ingredients are not specifically tested on pregnant women for obvious reasons. It's ethically, we can't do that. But there are ingredients that we know there is potential, theoretical potential for harm, such as retinoids, which is why we say to avoid them. Now, a topical retinol in pregnancy, the absorption is extremely low, and we're talking retinol, not retinoic acid. Even so, we know that oral vitamin E derivatives like isotretinoin have been shown to cause birth defects. So that's why we say avoid the topical version as well out of an abundance of caution. Now, there isn't that same concern around ingredients like peptides or because but again, they have not been specifically studied in pregnancy. So it's all about what you feel comfortable with. And I can tell you that I was comfortable using those ingredients. I did incorporate them into my routine when I was pregnant and I haven't stopped. So even though I've reincorporated in my retinoid, I'm still using peptides. I'm still using bakuchiol because if anything, bakuchiol is just another antioxidant that I like to add into my nighttime routine. Next question, another pregnancy question. I'm pregnant and no longer tolerating vitamin C. What's an alternative? And this answer applies to you even if you're not pregnant. If you're someone who is using vitamin C and all of a sudden it's not working for you, check which type of vitamin C you're using. Make sure you didn't incorporate anything else into your routine that could be causing a more sensitive skin barrier that then you're reacting to other products. That can happen sometimes. But if you truly haven't added anything and all of a sudden you can't use your vitamin C, there are some vitamin Cs that are more likely to cause irritation than others, and they're the ones that that have the ingredient L-ascorbic acid. L-ascorbic acid is a one of the water-soluble forms of vitamin C. So it doesn't penetrate our skin as readily because our skin is made up of lipids and lipids are oil. Oil and water don't mix, right? So anything that is water is going to have a harder time penetrating our skin. Because of that, 
Formulations will use a low pH formulation and other ingredients that can help to increase penetration so that the L-ascorbic acid gets down where it needs to go to do its job. This formulation itself can then cause stinging, burning, little breakouts, things like that. So if that's happening to you with your vitamin C, what you can do, instead of giving up vitamin C altogether because it's a really crucial ingredient for your skin, Opt for a lipid-soluble form of vitamin C, like THD ascorbate. This is becoming more and more popular. It's in it's in brands like Cubby's Vitamin C. I think Dr. Brandt has one. I personally use the Revision C Plus Correcting 30%. That's a really fantastic option. Because it's lipid-soluble, it penetrates the skin without the use of a low pH formulation, and then you're not getting all of that irritation. So before you write off vitamin C altogether— try one of those options. If that still doesn't work, which to be honest, I I doubt, I haven't seen that really happen when switching to THD ascorbate. Usually it's very well tolerated. But if that happens, you could look for other antioxidants. Actually, Bacuchiol is one that I really like for its antioxidant properties. There are resveratrol. There's tons of antioxidants out there. So you can start using one of those in your serum. We know vitamin C is one of the most potent. So whenever we can use that, we want to, but there are definitely other options. Next question, how much sensitivity is normal when using a retinol? So this question is a little nuanced and the amount of sensitivity that you're going to get from a retinol is going to be different depending on so many factors. One, of course, your skin type, your innate skin type, your other products that you're using in your routine, how you incorporated that retinol, your environment, so many things, what season you're in. So the short answer is, A little bit of redness. Flaking is obviously very normal. We see that very regularly. So flaking is normal. Dryness is normal. A little bit of redness. But if you're itching, burning, stinging to the point where even your other products are stinging, you're even washing your face stings, you definitely want to dial it back. And that might mean just taking a break until your skin feels normal and then reincorporating it, starting, you know, using the right tips and tricks, which I have tons of content on how to incorporate a retinoid. So you can find that on the blog or on Instagram, um, or you can leave a review and let me know if you want me to actually do a full episode about that. I can. There honestly is enough information to have a full podcast episode on how to use a retinoid. But if that's the case for you, Like I said, just pulling back and then restarting might be the answer, or you may actually need to find a different formulation. It's rare that I would say you have to stop using a retinoid altogether because almost always there's a formulation that works for every skin type. There are some that are extremely, extremely gentle, like Summer Fridays. It Cosmetics has a cream with retinol in it that's very gentle. So there are some really gentle options that you could use even for a bottle or two until your skin acclimates to that, and then you could go up to the next option. Another really great option is retinaldehyde. That is also a retinoid, but it is a little bit better tolerated and actually a little bit more efficacious than retinol. Um, Naturium makes a fantastic one with uh, 0.05% retinaldehyde. So that's another option if you're getting sensitivity with retinoids. But the shorter answer is a little bit is normal. Dryness is normal. Flaking is normal. But if it's affecting your daily life, if it's stinging and burning, if it's very uncomfortable, that is something that I would say is not ideal and we want to try to find a solution. Next question is what do I do about sunspots around the eyes? So right at the top of the cheekbone and underneath the eye, that area is very common for sun damage because of the way the sun hits our face, but it's also a common area that we see melasma. If this is you, honestly, just using your regular products for hyperpigmentation are great options. So incorporating an antioxidant serum like vitamin C, making sure you're using sunscreen in that area every single day and reapplying, making sure that you're getting your brightening serums up in this area. I love ingredients like kojic acid. I love tranexamic acid. I love licorice root extract. And again, these are going to be the options that are already present in your brightening serums. Just make sure that you get them underneath the eye there. The other little hack that I love for sunspots under the eyes or even dark circles is to opt for an eye cream that has both SPF and a tint in it. The one that I use, um, and it's actually one of the only ones I know that has both of them, is the one from Color Science. It's a mineral SPF, but it's also tinted. So that's important for a few reasons. One is that sunscreen is crucial for treating hyperpigmentation because we know that UV exposure will make it worse. 
The other thing is that tint is also very helpful for treating hyperpigmentation because we know that visible light will make it worse. So visible light is the light that we see around us. It's a different part of light than UV rays that we get from the sun. So it's not protected by regular old sunscreen. The tint, the iron oxides in tinted sunscreen or even iron oxides in your makeup provide a physical barrier from that visible light. And that's really important because it it makes hyperpigmentation worse. So anywhere that you're experiencing pigment, using a product with tint and SPF is really key. And underneath the eyes, I love to use it, like a tinted eye cream with SPF because it also doubles as like a concealer. You could get like a, a shade one lighter than your natural skin tone. I actually have the medium shade, but if I went to the light shade, it would definitely be nice and brightening underneath the eye. So it kind of doubles as your concealer too. Next question, what are some products for skin texture? So skin texture, I find when people mention that they have skin texture can be a few things. It could be acne because blackheads and whiteheads, comedonal acne are very textured. It can kind of cover the whole forehead or different areas of the face. And that can sometimes be described as skin texture. And another type of skin texture I see is kind of pores. People will call that skin texture. Sometimes it'll be flaking or increased cell turnover. People will call that skin texture after starting a product. But for the purposes of this question, I'm going to lean more towards like clogged pores, acne, maybe enlarged pores. And the answer for that is retinoids. So using a higher strength retinoid is going to be key for this kind of skin texture. So if that means over-the-counter adapalene or maybe it means seeing your provider for a prescription, these are going to help tremendously. Also making sure that you're just supporting the skin barrier, using proper moisturizers, you're not over-drying the skin, not using too much hyaluronic acid. Hyaluronic acid is, is something that's in every product, so it's easy to overuse. Um, we don't want to be doing anything that could potentially be dehydrating or drying out the skin because that can increase the way that our skin texture appears. The other thing is that emollients in moisturizers just help the surface skin cells kind of lay flatter. So you'll notice that the skin kind of automatically appears a little bit better if that's the issue that's causing the texture. Next question is strawberry skin on the arms. So this is a term that is often used to mean what we see in practice as keratosis pilaris, uh, which is those kind of rough and bumpy skin that you see on the backs of the arms and the legs. My favorite thing to use for this is a mix of a chemical and very, very gentle physical exfoliant. You'll know that I almost never recommend a physical, well, I really never recommend a physical exfoliant for the face. I don't really see there ever being a benefit, to be honest. But for the body, it can be helpful and it is less likely to cause irritation. So I really like to have one of each in my routine and just have it in my sh my shower because I actually get KP on the back of my thighs. The famous one, the KP Bump Eraser from First Aid Beauty is a great option. I also really like the salicylic acid cleansers from Naturium. I keep those in my shower. Those are helpful. And whenever you're using any of these products, you want to work them into the skin that you are having the issue. Let it sit and then rinse after you've let it sit for a couple minutes to kind of get to work. Because even some of the physical exfoliants also are automatically have a little bit of chemical exfoliant in them. And you want to give those ingredients time to sit on the skin before you're rinsing them off. Another important tip for KP is to moisturize right when you get out of the shower on damp skin. So after you get out of the shower, you're just going to kind of pat dry and then make sure you're using a really good moisturizer. I really like the body moisturizer from Skin Fix, their Barrier Plus Cream. And a more budget-friendly option, you could do like a CeraVe or a Eucerin from the drugstore. This may not completely take away the KP, but it should help. If you had, if you have very red and angry KP, definitely see your provider because there are some prescription treatments and even lasers we can use to help diminish the appearance. Next question is skincare and hair care I splurge on versus what I save on? And that's a really good question. I think it is a very nuanced answer because as skincare continues to progress, there is probably almost no product that doesn't have a good budget alternative, especially with brands on the market like Naturium. I think you can probably find every single product you need at a budget, but I'll tell you what I do personally in my routine and what I would recommend moving forward. And, and this is a generalization. In general, I like to splurge on options like vitamin C because 
like I said earlier with L-ascorbic acid, it is unstable. It needs to be formulated properly. It needs to have the right packaging in order to be effective. My vitamin C, the C plus correcting I use, um, is the THD ascorbate is actually more stable, but even so, that's the most expensive product in my whole skincare routine. And I'm okay with that because that's my vitamin C. It's one of my most important ones. I used to say splurge on retinoids because, again, they're highly unstable. But again, with brands like Naturium, their retinaldehyde is one of my favorite that there is. And prescription options are, are are pretty inexpensive. So we can't really say that anymore. Although some of my my most liked retinol formulations are a little bit more expensive. I love the retinol from Shawnee Darden. That's probably my favorite retinol available at Sephora and a really great option. When it comes to cleansers, I would say always budget because there are fantastic cleansers and cleansing balms out there that are at a really low price point. Moisturizer honestly could go either way because I would say most of my favorite moisturizers are on like the kind of middle road range. I would say like $50 is around what I spend on a moisturizer. But what I will tell you is there is absolutely no reason to ever spend above $180 on any single product. And $180 is in my head because that's the price of SkinCeutical C for like, and we know how fantastic that product is. But there is no reason to be spending $200, $300 on a moisturizer, on a hyaluronic acid serum. I mean, this is crazy. This is crazy. I can't believe people are spending this. So take that with a grain of salt when I say splurge. I'm not talking about $200, $300. When I say splurge, I'm talking about $50, $60. So my splurge is definitely probably my moisturizer, and that's just a cosmetic thing for me. I like the way it feels to have a nice, luxurious moisturizer on my skin. Sunscreen, again, can go either way. There are a lot of really good budget sunscreens now, but if you have a deeper skin tone, it can be harder to find a cosmetically elegant sunscreen. Um, again, ones that I love. I love Naturium. It rubs in so well, no matter your skin tone. There are some other really great affordable options. Also, definitely look at like Korean skincare, other Asian skincare, because they have some affordable options that are really, really nice and cosmetically elegant on the skin. Honestly, much more elegant than the formulations we have here, sometimes more effective. Um, they have better filters than we do. So don't sleep on that if, it, if that's an option for you. Hair care. I do, I guess, kind of splurge on hair care. I would say my biggest splurge is my Nutrafol vitamin because that is pricier, but it's evidence-based. I use it in clinic. I've used it for myself for years, and I feel like that that is huge. Obviously, my hair tools I splurge on because I don't want to be causing heat damage. Hair things like K18, I splurge on that because I know that it's efficacious and it's really going to help with hair damage. Shampoo, conditioner, you could go either way. I would say I go kind of middle of the road just because those are the brands I happen to love, but there are really good drugstore brands out there. I love Kristen S. from Target. That's a fantastic option. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with, like, the L'Oreal drugstore shampoos and conditioners. There are a lot of good options there, too. Hair masks, again, I could go either way, splurge or save on. And I think that pretty much covers all of the different products that I use. What are my thoughts on BRP50? So P50 is a cult product and there are many iterations of that product. I personally don't understand the hype and I would never actually put the original formulation on my skin. I just think that there are so many better options when it comes to these sorts of products. Maybe when it was first released, there really wasn't anything on the market like it. That being said, I would never put that ingredient profile on my skin. Now, granted, I do have more sensitive skin, but I can I can safely use retinoids. I can safely use many chemical exfoliants without any issues. But something like that, I think you're just kind of asking for, for an issue. But if it's something you love and you're already incorporating it in your routine and it's working well, there's no reason to stop. I just don't think that for the price, it's something I would I would personally ever use. Next question, can you help me with milia on the chin and jawline? So the first thing would be that it may or may not be actual milia. Sometimes comedonal acne 
when you look at it in the mirror, can look similar to milia. So it's important to know the difference. Now, either way, the treatment I'm going to tell you is going to be a stronger retinoid. So something like a dapoline or even a prescription strength retinoid. But with milia specifically, those will sometimes need to be, almost always actually will need to be extracted by your derm provider. Um, and I actually like to have my patients on a retinoid for some time before we do a lot of milia extractions because it kind of helps to bring those to the surface a little bit before we extract them. So either way, the answer is going to be a retinoid, but you want to know the difference because milia may need to be extracted. Now, the good thing about either of the conditions, milia or comedonal acne, the consistent use of a retinoid will help to prevent them from popping up. So once you're on it consistently, you should start to see them less and less. Next is, what is a good melasma treatment without hydroquinone? <sighs> melasma is a beast, you guys. There's no cure for melasma. It's something you'll have for the rest of your life. I have it, so I feel you. I've had it since I was a teenager. It will ebb and flow. So if you're on a sunny vacation, it will ebb. If you are pregnant, it will ebb. If you're on hormonal birth control, it will ebb. But you may have some flow times in your life too where it's really not much of a problem and that's just the reality of the condition. It will come and go. There's, It's never going to probably fully go away, but you're going to be able to manage it in a way that it might not be super noticeable. That being said, hydroquinone is the gold standard as far as actually treating the pigmentation itself. But there are some things you can do at home, especially if you're like skincare naive. I've seen some really incredible transformations with at-home skincare for people who are kind of new to some of these ingredients. And the first answer is going to be that you need to use sunscreen every single day. You need to reapply and it needs to be tinted. And that's just the reality of the situation. You have to avoid the sun. Even if we get your melasma to a point where you're really happy with it, truly, if you walk your dog for 20 minutes without ample, I mean, ample sun protection, I'm talking visor, sunscreen, avoiding, you know, being avoiding the actual sun and, and walking in the shade as much as possible, that will return. It can happen that quickly. So, Sun protection, sunscreen. Um, I don't leave my house without a hat or a visor. I really kick on the tinted sunscreen. I also take a vitamin called HelioCare. It's polypodium leucotomus, which is extra oral antioxidants that can help with the um, hyperpigmentation. So I take one of those before I'm ever going to be out in the sun. I really avoid direct sunlight. We know that even getting sun on your body can worsen the melasma on your face. So I always see people who have like this melasma sun stash and they like caked on the zinc on their upper lip. That's great, but even getting sun on your body is going to worsen it. So that's important to know. As far as actual products to use, I love a little bit of a gentle chemical exfoliant to help with surface pigmentation. Retinoids are a gold standard treatment. Um, not only do they help increase cellular turnover, but they actually do help to reduce the hyperpigmentation itself. It's been shown. And then, of course, brightening ingredients. So when you're talking about non-hydroquinone brighteners, those are things like like I mentioned earlier, kojic acid, tranexamic acid, licorice root extract. There are so many. There's more popping on the market all the time. So having some sort of a comprehensive brightening serum is a good idea. And then, of course, vitamin C. I actually have an entire routine on hyperpigmentation. So I will, I'm just thinking now, I'll go ahead and make it like a little uh, PDF printout for you guys. So just go to skinthusiast.com forward slash hyperpigmentation. I'm making that up right now, but I will set it up before this is live. So if you just go to skinthusiast.com forward slash hyperpigmentation, there will be a little downloadable PDF that you can get, um, some tips and tricks for hyperpigmentation and a sample regimen. But truly, if you're really going through it, um, topical hydroquinone is a really great option. There are also some oral agents like oral tranexamic acid that we use in office. This is, of course, something that you would talk to your provider about. It's a medication that's used in medicine to actually clot the blood and stop bleeding, but we use it in very, very low doses to help to basically clear hyperpigmentation. It works very effectively. It's the oral form of the ingredient that's really popular right now in skincare. Um, there, do, there is a, a very small risk of clotting, obviously, because of the nature of the, the medication, and the risk is similar to that of oral contraception. So if you've ever taken the birth control pill and you've been educated on the risk of blood clots, that similar risk is there with the oral tranexamic acid. So definitely something you would not do without talking to your provider first. It's a prescription-only treatment, and I just want you to know that it's an option to talk to your provider about if you're really struggling and you have more of a refractory case that isn't responding to topical agents. 
Next question, is Altrino worth the money over generic Retin-A? So Altrino and Retin-A are both brand names of tretinoin. So generic Retin-A is tretinoin and generic Altrino is tretinoin, if that makes sense. So tretinoin is the ingredient, Retin-A is a brand name, and Altrino is a brand name. They're actually from the same company. Altrino is nice because it's in more of a lotion base. There's lots of glycerin in it. It can be a little bit better tolerated um, because of that base. But I'm a big believer that tretinoin in general for most people is the key and the vehicle is less important. Um, I personally love a nice vehicle, but if it's the difference between like getting your medication and not being able to afford it, then definitely just go with the generic. There's another question on here that I'm going to jump to now that someone asked. Um, their esthetician told them that tretinoin causes clogging of the pores, that it's comedogenic. And I wanted to touch on that because there are some tretinoin formulations where the vehicle itself the vehicle itself, which is the cream that the tretinoin is mixed in. So it's not the tretinoin that is potentially causing clogged pores. It's the it's the lotion or the formulation that it's mixed within may have some ingredients that are potentially quote-unquote comedogenic. That's a whole other nuanced topic that we are going to cover in this episode. But the short answer is tretinoin itself is not comedogenic or clogging your pores. If you notice an increase in clogged pores using like a generic formulation of tretinoin after a couple of months after the initial purging, potential purging process is over, then that's something we might need to look into switching your formulation, see see what um, formulation you're on now and what the ingredients are on the vehicle. But in general, that's really not something that you need to worry about when starting a tretinoin. And since I already talked about it, let's just talk about the elephant in the room, which is comedogenicity. I think it's something that we need to talk about because it's something I get in my DMs all the time. Is this product comedogenic? What's a good non-comedogenic foundation? You know, is this routine non-comedogenic? It's so, it's such a hot topic right now on social media because everybody's making videos about pore clogging ingredients and ingredients that cause acne. So let's just set the record straight. Comedogenicity is a very, very nuanced topic. There are some creators who have done really deep dives into this this topic. One that I can think of off the top of my head is Lab Muffin Beauty Science. If you don't already follow Michelle, you absolutely should. She's incredible. But she has a whole video and blog post about comedogenicity and why we need to take these ratings with a grain of salt. And I'm going to kind of paraphrase it for you here. The way that those comedogenicity scales, where you see like a number from zero to five, those ingredients were rated years ago on studies that used rabbit ears to understand the pore clogging ability of products. And as you can imagine, using the inside of a rabbit ear is not the same as using human skin. And even the times that they did use human skin in studies, it was not in a a way that we would actually apply a product to the skin. So you can imagine that if you're applying product to the skin, and then you're occluding it with a dressing, you're you're applying this ingredient in 100% concentration, and then and then including it with a dressing, which means you're pushing it further into the skin. That's not the same as using a formulation that has a very low percentage of this ingredient on your skin without a dressing or any sort of occlusion. The environments are very different. So one may cause clogged pores when the other one doesn't. All that to say, you might have a ingredient in a formulation that is on one of those lists, and it may never cause an issue for you because that final formulation has altered it in a way or made it so that the final formulation itself is not comedogenic. Similarly, you could have an you could have an ingredient list that has none of those red flag ingredients, but the final formulation itself could be pore clogging. On top of that, it also kind of depends on how that ingredient or formulation melds with your own skin. So it it you just cannot say whether or not truly a formulation is comedogenic or not. You can maybe steer clear of some of the ingredients if that if they're at the very top of the list, but even that is not a full uh, a full fire way to know whether or not the formulation is comedogenic. The only way to know if a product is going to clog your pores is to try it. And that's the facts. That's the truth. So I I think social media is great for skincare education, but this is one this is one topic that I feel is just getting a little bit old, and I do think there is some benefit in potentially avoiding some ingredients if you want to start figuring out what could possibly be the issue for you. But if you're not having issues, if you're not having a lot of clogged pores with the product, there's no reason to stop using it or to even look deeper if it's working for your skin. Okay, I'm glad we got that out of the way and we can move on to the next question. 
Next question is, what's a good under eye cream for those who are prone to milia? So if you are noticing that you're getting a lot of milia under the eye with your eye creams, then I think the best option, honestly, is to look for an eye serum because it's going to be a lot less likely to cause milia. I really like the one from Dr. Dennis Gross because it has retinol in it. So it's going to also help to bring those milia to the surface and prevent further milia from forming. Next question, what do you do when you get a sunburn? I get it. It happens even when we're really, really careful. It can happen. So what you want to do is obviously protect yourself fully from the sun after you've had a sunburn. So really, I mean, sometimes a t-shirt isn't enough to do it. You want to be fully in the shade with no sun exposure at all. You want to make sure that you're moisturizing the skin properly with a nice gentle uh, moisturizer, something nice and healing. You can use vitamin C serums on your sunburn to help that antioxidant potential there. You can also take the HelioCare vitamin like I was mentioning before. Definitely ask your provider about that one. Um, And don't pop the blisters. If you blister, don't pop them. That's really important. And just do better next time. Try harder next time. We know that those bad burns actually increase our risk of melanoma, which is the deadliest form of skin cancer. So make sure that once you identify that you are that you have gotten a burn, that you change something next time to avoid it from happening. And with kids, please, please, please be super, super careful. And that brings me to my next question. Do kids need sunscreen every day? Um, if they're going to be outside in the sun, yeah, you need to apply sunscreen. A nice mineral sunscreen is great. I love Vino Baby. I love uh, Baby Bum by Sun Bum. Most mineral formulations are going to be fine for kids. If they're inside, no. Not like not like us where we're applying it to our face even when we're inside. That's really cosmetic that we're concerned about. For kids, I'm not, I'm not so concerned about them having sunscreen inside. That's something that they can make their own decision on later when they're an adult and if they get interested in, in skincare. Who knows what that generation is going to be into? They may, they may have zero interest in anti-aging. We really don't know what it's going to be like. But um, as far as actual risk to the skin, only when they're outside in the sun. Next question. Can I use hyaluronic acid and niacinamide together? You can, absolutely. If, in fact, if you look at the back of your moisturizer or the back of your favorite serum, they may both already be in there. Um, they play well with most ingredients, but just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I actually, those are two ingredients I don't really recommend using separate serums for because as I mentioned, they're in everything. So your moisturizer has HA or glycerin in it, probably your serum probably has it in it. So there's really no need for an extra serum or step. And the same is is similar with niacinamide. Niacinamide's in so many products now because it's such a hot ingredient. There's no need for an extra serum. That's just my two cents on it. Next question, thoughts on shaving your face. I love, I love shaving my face. I think it makes such a huge difference. It's such a fantastic way to gently exfoliate the skin and it removes peach fuzz. It helps your makeup go on better, your skincare go on better, your face looks glowier, it looks smoother. I think it's probably the easiest thing that you can do to make a big impact in the way your skin looks. I use a little razor by uh, the Skinny Confidential. And then something I've been doing recently, I used to shave on dry skin, but I've actually been using the oil from Barefaced. It's such a fantastic oil to use before you shave. And it's a lot more satisfying because kind of like all the dead skin and the hair kind of get in that oil and you can remove it nice and easy. And then your skin doesn't feel dry and tight after you do it. I have actually a whole uh, YouTube video on how I shave my face and what other products I use in my routine. So if you want to check that out, it's on my YouTube. Okay, next question. Is prescription tretinoin better or the same as over-the-counter? So when we say over-the-counter, I'm assuming you mean over-the-counter retinoids. Tretinoin is only available by prescription, but it's a type of retinoid. Um, There are over-the-counter retinoids like Adapalene, and then there are like cosmetic formulations of retinol which are the ones that we see in like beauty, big beauty box stores. And the short answer is yes, it is better. When we look at retinoids, the active form of retinoic acid, which is what tretinoin is, is the form that our skin can use. So when we have retinol or retinaldehyde, they need to convert to 
retinoic acid in order for our skin to make use of it. So for retinol, that requires a two-step conversion because it goes from retinol to retinaldehyde to then retinoic acid. For retinaldehyde, it's only a one-step conversion, which is why you'll hear me say that retinaldehyde is more effective than retinol. But each time you're making that conversion, you're going to lose a little bit of potency. So tretinoin will be the most potent of the three. However, it doesn't mean it's the right option for you. I think depending on your concerns and depending on your skin type, a retinaldehyde or retinol might be a better option. Um, but when it comes to efficacy, yes, of course, tretinoin is going to be the most efficacious retinoid that you can have. It's also going to increase the irritant potential as well. Next question, which at-home devices do I recommend? I think if I had to pick one, I would definitely see, say an LED mask. I personally use red light. Red light is great for inflammation. It's great for collagen production. If you have acne, a blue light uh, option is great to have. Dr. Dennis Gross makes one that has both the red light and the blue light option. I personally really like the current body as well. It's only red light, but I don't use blue light because I have melasma. If you have melasma, you want to steer clear of blue light. And I love that they make an option for the face and the neck. This is probably, if I had to pick a device, it would be that one. Um, an LED mask is a great option for, for your routine. I think I have a code for current body. I think it's CB Amy, but I'll put it in the show notes. This podcast is brought to you by, well, me. Skinthusiast.com is your one-stop shop for all things skin and beauty. We have so many blog posts that you could educate yourself on skincare all day long. If you want a deeper dive, I hold your hand through creating a skincare regimen from scratch in my comprehensive skincare guide. And we have the cutest crewnecks for anyone who's in their skin era. If you're a skin enthusiast, you're going to love it here. Head to skinthusiast.com forward slash shop. The next at-home device I use is a microcurrent device. I personally use the New Face Pro option. And microcurrent is helpful because it helps to kind of temporarily contract the muscles, which will give you like a more lifted and contoured effect. And it also may help to stimulate cellular activity, which may translate to increasing collagen and elastin down the road. So I personally love my New Face. I need to be better about using it consistently. Uh, ever since I had a kid, it's hard to like incorporate all these devices, but I would say those are the two that are actually like worth it for me. I would say microcurrent is probably not worth it for everybody because the result is subtle and it's it's temporary aside from these this increase in cellular activity that we may see increasing collagen and elastin down the road, but it's expensive. So it's not for everybody. You're going to hear a lot of skin experts say it's BS. I personally use it in my routine and I do think there's a place for it, but um, I would say the LED mask is more important if you're like picking one or the other. Next question is, what skincare should I use for a long-haul flight? I'll be honest with you. I do my skincare before I leave, and I leave it alone. So if I'm on a red-eye long-haul flight, I just pack on the moisture before I leave. So that looks like, you know, like a hydrating essence. I really like the milky essence from Rode. Like, I forget what the glazing milk, I think it's called. Then I'll do like my regular serums. I'll do a really dense moisturizer. And that's like for a nighttime flight. If it's a daytime flight, I will then follow it with a really, really moisturizing sunscreen, like something like the Naturium Duglow, something really, really moisturizing on top of my dense moisturizer. And then I honestly leave my face alone. I don't touch it. If you're someone who like you're on a red eye and you feel like you have to clean your face, before like in the middle of the flight, just do a gentle cleanser and a dense moisturizer and a sunscreen if you're going to be landing when it's light out. Um, this this like whole skincare on the flight trend, I think is kind of outrageous and silly. You just need to make sure that you're packing on the moisture and hydration before you get on the flight. There is a decrease in humidity in the air on the cabin. So you will potentially be more dry, but I don't think that the answer to that is just doing a full in-flight skincare routine with these masks and things. I think just addressing it before you get on the flight and making sure that your skin is really hydrated, really moisturized is the best way to approach it. And a few more questions on acne. Can people with naturally dry skin still use Accutane? Yes, you can. You may have potentially greater side effects than someone who's starting off with very oily skin, but to be honest, both skin types are probably going to have the side effects. I would say most of my patients end up with dryness and irritation 
at least initially went on Accutane. And there are things that we can do to mitigate that. But having dry skin does not mean you can't use Accutane if that's what you and your provider have decided is the best option for your acne. Next question, what is the quickest way to get rid of post-acne marks? The answer is there is no quick way to get rid of acne marks. It is very, very frustrating. They can take a very long time to go away, but what I can tell you is that time will be exponentially compounded if you're not using proper sun exposure. I think aside from melasma, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation is the single hardest thing to treat and sun protection is so, so, so important. So I'm talking a full half a teaspoon of of application in the morning, reapplying every two hours, making sure your formula is tinted, avoiding sun, hats. You can use the HelioCare vitamin that I mentioned for the melasma as well. It's so, so, so important. And then on top of that, you want to incorporate things like retinoids, um, brightening agents, and very gentle chemical exfoliation here and there together, that is really going to help. Again, uh, the PDF that I'm going to send out, the skinthusiast.com forward slash hyperpigmentation, that is going to be applicable to both acne marks, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, and for melasma. So if you're concerned with either of those, definitely go there and download that PDF. Next question, what is a good skincare routine for a tween? So at this age, what you really want to focus on is a gentle cleanse for hygienic purposes. Only at night is fine. If they want to splash their face with water in the morning, that's fine. Or just just slap on some sunscreen, that's fine too. We want to make sure that they're using a sunscreen. Um, Usually, if a tween or a teen is oily, the sunscreen will be enough in the morning. They don't need a separate moisturizer. But if they're on the dry side or if they're using acne medications that are making them dry, moisturizer and sunscreen. Then at night, like I said, gentle cleanse. Make sure they're removing all that sunscreen. Gentle moisturizer. If they're breaking out, they can use something like a retinoid. Definitely talk to your provider. Adapalene is available over-the-counter, and it's FDA-approved for over the age of 12. So it's a great option for teens and tweens who are getting that mild acne where you think maybe it's not worth them going to a derm yet. But in general, I always think it's a good idea to see a dermatology provider because we can really help tailor the routine to their skin type and concerns. So morning, it's just going to be moisturizer and sunscreen or just sunscreen if they're oily. At night, it's going to be cleanse and moisturize with or without a retinoid for acne. Now to some hair questions. Should I shampoo my ends? No, you don't need to shampoo your ends. You can just really lather your shampoo on your scalp and let it kind of rinse through the ends naturally and they'll get a little shampoo that way without being dried out. Next question, can you explain hair oiling before you shower? Yes. So if you follow me on Instagram, you've definitely seen me talk about how I oil my ends before I shower, kind of for the exact reason I just mentioned. I like to apply a oil to my hair before showering so that when I'm really working in and lathering up the scalp, I like to do like a full detox routine for my scalp every once in a while. So when I'm doing stuff like that, when all that washes down, it's not drying out my ends with those like, you know, intense surfactants. Instead, that oil is acting as a bit of a barrier so that my ends stay nice and moisturized and hydrated. What is my hair care routine? Okay, so my hair care routine is a little involved. I really try to take good care of my hair. I love my hair. It's something I've been working on for years. As I mentioned, I started taking Nutrafol like almost four years ago now, and that kind of started me on this whole hair care journey because I saw how much it helped the density and like the life and health of my hair. And so I started really taking my topical hair care more seriously as well. And then obviously working in dermatology, we do learn quite a bit about the structure and the science of the hair. So I started implementing my knowledge of the science of the hair into the products I was using. And once I did that, I noticed such a difference in the health of my hair. And that's how I kind of came about organically to sharing it on social media. So aside from oral things like Nutrafol, I also use scalp serums kind of depending on my concerns. I really like the Array scalp serum that has been shown to uh, prevent premature graying of the hair. I do have like one or two single gray hairs. So once I found that, I started using their serum. Other scalp serums I'll use if I have a lot of buildup, I'll use the salicylic acid scalp serum from Briogeo, usually my sign to use that is like if my scalp is flaky and itchy, that usually means I have too much product buildup and I need to kind of break down some of that oil on the scalp. 
I also really like the Maya Chia scalp spray because it's really nice and light. It doesn't feel heavy at the root and it helps to support, support the hair follicle. It's anti-inflammatory, anti-androgen. So it does help to support that hair follicle at the surface. So I'm using one of these usually every single day, um, kind of depending. Uh, I wish I could use them all every single day, but my roots would be way too weighed down. So I just use usually one or the other. Then, as I mentioned, as far as shampooing, I do use a pre-oil shampoo on most days. I do like to use a detox routine. I would say every three or four washes, and that looks like that Briogeo scalp spray if I'm feeling itchy and irritated, the one with salicylic acid. Then after that, I will use the, the scrub from Briogeo. It's really, really, really fine. Very fine. It's not like a true scrub, but it does have some scrubbing action. So I'll use that. And then I'll follow it with the detox shampoo from K18. That's my favorite clarifying shampoo. So that's my little detox routine that I do every three to four washes. For my basic shampoo and conditioner, I kind of mix this up. I've currently been using the Mango from Briogeo, their shampoo and conditioner. I'll sometimes use Kristen S from Target. I'll sometimes use the Redken. It's really kind of whatever I have on hand. That I'm not as obsessive about the basic shampoo and conditioner as I am about other products in my routine. Then on some days, instead of a conditioner, I'll use a moisturizing hair mask. That's usually either Briogeo or Kerastase or Gizu. And then on days I'm not using a hair mask and I skip conditioner, I'll use the K18. That is really best use consecutive washes for four to five washes when you have damaged hair. And then now I'm already on the maintenance phase because I've been using it for so long. So I'll just use it like every few washes. And on those days I skip conditioner, you apply it after you get out of the shower uh, on non-conditioned hair and you leave it on. And then the other thing in my routine that I would say has made a huge difference is the tools I use. So first of all, I always use a heat protectant, always, always. It's usually either the Shuumara or the ColorWow. The ColorWow Dream Coat's insane if you guys haven't tried it. It literally makes your hair so shiny and like humidity proof and you have to kind of use a lot of it. So I've heard complaints about like buying the bottle and you're spraying a lot of it, but for me, it's so, so worth it. My hair is so shiny when I use it. And that also doubles as a heat protectant. So that's perfect. And then I pretty much use my Dyson Air Wrap after every single time I wash my hair. I start with a brush attachment to kind of smooth out the back where my hair is wavy. Then I use the round brush attachment to smooth. And finally, I go in with the curling wand to give myself like a lot of body and that kind of like 90s blowout. I understand that's like a lot of steps using three different attachments, but I usually only wash my hair once or twice a week and that blowout lasts me the entire time. So it is so worth it. I think if I had to literally pick one hair thing that I could that I could use for the rest of my life, it would be the Dyson Airwrap. I have both the new one and the old one and it's incredible. Fun fact, I actually bought the, the old one years ago when it first launched and I returned it because I didn't like it. But it was because my hair was short on the shorter side and it just it didn't make as much of an impact for me at the time because I wasn't as interested in hair health. I was more interested in the way it's styled and it just wasn't really doing anything differently. I didn't like the way it styled my hair. I returned it and then I kept seeing people talk about it and I loved the other people's results. So I was like, okay, I'm going to try it one more time. And I did this when my hair was a little bit longer and oh my God, I loved the styling results it gave me. That nice bouncy blowout I love. And then once I started seeing how much the health of my improve my hair improved when using it. I was just like completely sold. And now I don't ever, I don't even own a regular hair dryer. So that's my full hair care routine. I know it's a lot, but again, you have to remember I have access to all of these things. And yeah, the bigger budget items I pay for myself, but it is helpful to have all these things to test so I can incorporate all of these things in my routine. And if you're interested in a PDF of the actual hair routine, I already have that one up on the site. It's just skinthusiast.com forward slash hair care, and you can download my full hair care routine. A few questions to wrap up. I had a couple questions about in-office procedures. One of them being, what do I think of masseter Botox for clenching and jaw pain? I love masseter Botox for the right candidate. I think it's overly used. It's being overdone. If you're someone with a very slim face and your masseters are not enlarged, it will 
slim the face even more and could potentially lead to worsening jowling, which I have heard is a problem. People ask me about that all the time. Yes, that is a real reality because think about it. You're debulking the back of the face. So that tissue has to go somewhere, right? That skin has to go somewhere and it's going to come forward. But if you're having lots of pain, your masters are enlarged. I can really see this patient like as soon as I walk in the door. You can just kind of tell. I can see it in photos of people. Those masters really bulk out when they clench and often it's accompanied by pain or clicking. So I do think it's a really fantastic option for that patient. I actually shared my own journey on TikTok and on Instagram. I used to do master Botox when I before I did Invisalign because my, my masseters were so enlarged and so painful from grinding and clenching my teeth. But once I fixed my bite with the Invisalign, I don't have to do it anymore. So it might also be an option to use in the meantime while you're doing some of those corrective measures. I know a lot of dentists will offer that service too in their clinic to help with that pain and clenching. Next question, what yearly or month, monthly skin treatments do I do? I don't think that there's currently at this age, at 32, something I do every year. I think moving forward, what I probably will start incorporating yearly is Sculptra, which is a biostimulator that can be injected into the skin to help your body increase its own collagen. And then plus or minus all therapy. I haven't yet done all therapy, but it's an option I really love for my patients. And I'm starting to notice the same issue on my neck that I use all therapy for all my patients. So that's something I'm actually going to probably ask a colleague to do for me here pretty soon in the next couple of months. So I would say yearly or every other year, those are probably the two treatments I'm going to start moving forward. Sculpture I did this year and I really, really love the result. I definitely think I'll do it again, probably maybe even again this year. There's nothing I do to my skin monthly other than dermaplane it myself at home, shave my face. Um, I don't do monthly facials really just because I don't have the time. I think they're great. Um, it's probably something once I kind of get out of this like new mom era, I might start incorporating when I have a little bit more time because I do enjoy facials, um, but they're not like the top priority for me. Really what's most impactful is what I'm doing at home with my skincare. Um, other treatments I do is I do inject um, Botox or Dysport to myself or have a colleague do it. I would say I don't do it every three to four months. I do personally like to get a little bit of movement back. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can see I am like creasing and I don't mind that. I like it. I like having a little bit of movement back. I like keeping the muscle tone in my face. Um, so I would say I'm doing Botox every five months. It's probably closer to five months. I do notice that my headaches return once my Botox wears off. So sometimes that gets like unbearable and I have to go and go ahead and do it. That being said, I love the way Botox looks on me. I think I just feel, I feel refreshed. I feel more like myself. It's one of the first things I'll recommend if a new mom comes in and it's like, I don't recognize myself in the mirror. I feel like I've aged 20 years. I will say, okay, in this rare case, I'm going to look at you and say, let's do Botox. Usually when somebody comes in and they're asking me for help, I'll tackle skincare first. And unless they specifically ask about procedures, I won't bring it up because I think if it's someone who is unbothered by their lines, there's no reason to do it, right? If you're not bothered by your wrinkles, there's no reason to treat them with something like Botox. But if you are and you bring it up to me, Botox, I think is the most fantastic option and the one I use for myself. Next question is, what do I think about facials from an evidence-based perspective? I mean, they're not we're not going out and, tr and studying facials, but what do I think about them from a scientific perspective and the science of the skin? I think they're helpful for people with comedonal acne as long as you're also on the right regimen. So I would never recommend facials as your sole treatment. You really need to be on a regimen and probably a prescription. But for extractions, they can be very helpful. I would so much rather you go and get an extraction facial than try to extract on your own at home. They can also be a really important self-care practice, right? We often will kind of dismiss how much those practices can be helpful for our skin just from from a mental and emotional standpoint. We know that our skin is linked to, to our emotions and, and our mental health. So if that's helpful for you to feel like you're going and taking those measures and even just the downtime of laying in that bed for an hour and having somebody work on your face is really, really helpful. I love facials. Again, I wish I could do them more often. I just don't have the time. But if you're someone who has real skin concerns, a facial is not going to be the treatment for you.
It's not going to move the needle. It can be a great adjunct, but it's not going to be what is really impactful for your skin. Next question is a little life question. What are my go-to meals? I really try to follow a plant-forward, low-glycemic index diet. So I do eat carbs. I try to pair them with other foods that are going to reduce the glucose spike. This is something I started taking more seriously when I had gestational diabetes during my pregnancy and I had to watch my carb intake, but it's something I wish I would have incorporated way before. And obviously now when I'm not pregnant, I don't have diabetes. I, you know, I have a, a healthy insulin response, but it's still something that I take very seriously, not only for the health benefits of keeping a balanced blood sugar, but also for the skin benefits. So we know that when our blood sugar spikes repeatedly, consistently, we are increasing the risk of signs of aging. And even even things like acne can be aggravated by this. But we know that when our blood sugar is high, it basically in layman's terms, can eat up our collagen, our skin's collagen. So you will have quicker signs of aging. You will age faster if you have a higher glycemic index diet. So that is a diet in high in things like sugars and, and starches. So I do take that into account. I would say I do eat uh, animal protein now. I didn't for about three years. I was vegetarian. But I do try to prioritize fish lots and lots of vegetables. I eat a ton of vegetables. I do eat fruit. I love fruit. Um, my basic meals, I would say like one of my go-to is salmon and roasted vegetables. I'll do like roasted Brussels sprouts, asparagus. Um, we'll do roasted broccoli or cauliflower. I like to always try to have a salad with my meals. If I can, I'll usually eat that first because having your fiber first can actually blunt the blood sugar spike. And I love potatoes. I love bread. I love pasta. So when I'm eating those things, I try to have a lot of fiber first to help blunt that spike. Um, some other go-to meals, um, we're, we're like pretty basic in my house. I, I do, will do like a big roasted chicken. I'll do that with potatoes and carrots. I do a lot of Greek food in our house. I do a lot of Greek salads. I do a lot, uh, I'll do like a Greek pasta, a Greek spaghetti. We eat like a very heavily Mediterranean diet. We do a lot of fish, a lot of seafood. And I think the biggest thing is that when we do have meat or carbs, it's the small portion of the meal. And really what makes up the bulk is the vegetables. Um, and I think that really helps, again, our overall health, but also our skin. Also, I would say my favorite dessert, you guys have heard me talk about this on social media, is a bowl of organic pasture-raised Greek yogurt. The brand I like is called Stonyfield. I get the plain, no flavor, no sugar, nothing. And then I mix in it chopped organic strawberries I use these chocolate chips that I get on Amazon. They're from Lakanto is the brand, and they're basically called like a keto chocolate chip. I'm not keto, but they're basically a sugar-free. They're made with like monk fruit or something like that. And then I do pumpkin seeds, and that is my all-time favorite dessert. I had it every night when I was pregnant and probably every night since. I'll also do protein shakes to increase my protein. I found that increasing my protein has helped so much with um, my the composition of my body after pregnancy. I noticed the biggest change when I stopped drinking alcohol and I started eating more protein. So I love protein shakes. I use the Ritual postnatal protein or prenatal po protein, but I use it obviously even though I'm not pregnant anymore and I love that one. A few last questions, career questions. What is the difference between a dermatologist and a dermatology PA? This is a really great question. I think important for you to understand as a potential patient or a consumer on social media. I have many amazing dermatology colleagues. I was really lucky to join a practice with dermatologists who love PAs and love training PAs. So I've gotten such an incredible training that is not always available to some PAs. So I'm very, very grateful for that. I'm very grateful for the dermatologists in my life who are always willing to have a conversation with me. You know, we're, we're consulting back and forth with each other's patients, which I think is a really important relationship to have with the dermatologist that you work with if you are a provider. But the difference is that a dermatologist is a physician. They went to medical school. 
So they went to undergrad, then they went to medical school, and then they did a residency after that. They went into dermatology residency. Dermatology residency is one of the most difficult to get into for med students. So these are really like the top of the top doctors in their classes. And every dermatologist that I worked for, work, work with and work for also is so incredibly intelligent and just a wealth of knowledge. And I, like I said, I can't speak highly enough about all the, all the derms I work with. Now, a dermatology PA... We went to PA school. So we went to undergrad. So I, I, my undergrad major is in biology. I have my degree in biology, my bachelor's. And then I went on to PA school. So PA school is about 24 months to three years, depending on the program. So two to three years, depending on the program, where med school is four years. And they're set up similarly and differently. Obviously, PA school is much shorter, right? It's almost half the time. But we both do didactic work and clinical work where we go and work in the field and kind of get training in that sense. And it's meant to be a time where you're trained as a generalist, you're trained on all of medicine, and then you can go and rotate in different fields. So for PA school, the first year is all classroom. The second year is classroom and rotations where you're actually out there working as a student. Not working, but but you're, I mean, working is like the only word I can think of. You're not employed, but you're you're doing the job of a student in a, in a hospital or in a practice wherever you're rotating at the time. And that can look different for everybody, and especially depending on the preceptor, whoever you're working with in that capacity kind of decides what and what you what you can and cannot do. So then after PA school, you're done. You take your board exam and you go into whatever field you want to work in. And this is where the job that you pick is so crucial. Because unlike having a residency that med students have where they learn more and more about dermatology, we go straight in and have to be trained on the job. So that's where I feel so incredibly lucky to have been employed by Dr. Leslie Bauman here in Miami. If you're in Miami, you can come see us as a patient in our beautiful clinic and research center. But that's where I feel really lucky because she trained me on the job. She is a skincare, I mean, she really is like the the, the cosmeceutical dermatology guru. She kind of invented the training in this space. So I was extremely lucky to to train with her and for her to teach me and and employ me in that way. So those are the major differences between a dermatologist and a dermatology PA. Again, in most practices, they work very closely, but you just have to kind of speak to the provider yourself to understand their experience level. And, and you know, there are dermatology PAs who really don't do skincare at all. There are dermatologists who don't do skincare at all. So skincare is kind of a separate focus in dermatology. Obviously, we all are trained on the science of the skin and skin conditions from a medical standpoint, but not everybody does skincare. And that's something to understand as well. Next question, what was the road like to becoming a dermatology PA? So as I mentioned, I went to undergrad after high school. I got my bachelor's in biology. And then I also did extra prereqs for PA school, which are things like anatomy and physiology and physics and things like that. And then I went to PA school down here in South Florida. After my husband and I moved from Ohio, we were just boyfriend and girlfriend at the time. We moved to Florida and that's where I went to PA school. And during PA school, I rotated in dermatology because I knew that was an option. And then my second elective rotation was actually cardiothoracic surgery. So we did all the main rotations. You do pediatrics, you do OBGYN, you do family medicine, you do general surgery, you do psychiatry, all the main rotations. But then in PA school, you get to pick two or three that you want to do extra. So for me, that was derm and cardiothoracic surgery. When I graduated PA school, I wasn't quite ready to go into dermatology because although I know that's where I wanted to end up, I really had a true love for medicine and solving the puzzle of critical illness. So I took a job in critical care as an ICU PA, which was probably the most transforming experience I've ever had in my life. It taught me so much about myself. It was a very demanding job. I worked seven 12-hour night shifts in a row. And I was the only critical care provider in house at that at the hospital when I was there. I would we would switch back between nights and days. So when we were there during the day, we would rotate with our supervising physician. But when we were there at night, it was just you. You could obviously call the on-call doc, your your supervising physician who was on call for that night. But you were the one who was responsible for making the decisions, seeing the new critical care consults, and rounding on the units, answering any questions that came up in the night. 
obviously talking to any family during the night and then dealing with situations that would arise naturally in the ICU at night, which were critical, right? This is the ICU. So it was a lot of, you know, speaking to families, um, having to have those difficult conversations uh, when something would happen and making decisions quickly on your feet. But it was incredibly rewarding to see somebody come into the hospital in critical condition, unconscious, and then walking them, walk, watching them walk out of the hospital and being a part of that care was an incredibly rewarding thing thing to do. It was It was an incredible three years. But after what happened was I was actually on vacation with a friend and I got a call from my husband's boss. My husband's an architect. His boss at the time was friends with Dr. Leslie, is friends with Dr. Leslie Bauman and said, she's hiring a PA. You need to apply right now. And this was my dream job. I knew that was a clinic I wanted to work in. So when he said she was hiring, I literally edited my CV on my phone on vacation, like trying to get it in as quick as I possibly can. And side note, when I actually went to my interview, I remember seeing her like reading off my resume and there was like a red circle mark where I had made a typo and I was so embarrassed, but it was truly because I was editing my CV on my phone before I, before I sent it in because it was all happening so fast. And of course I got that job and was trained on dermatology and skincare by Dr. Bauman and was just a completely serendipitous chain of events that I'm so grateful for because I truly couldn't have handpicked a dermatologist I would have rather learned from. And next question, what are some tips for those who want to get into aesthetics? Network, and I don't mean go to dinner parties. I mean make true, true connections. Form and forge those relationships, those friends, those friendships with people who are doing what you want to do, not because you want to get something out of it, but because you're truly interested in what they have to say. And this could be things like other providers. This could be things like drug reps. They're often up on kind of the job opportunities that are available in other practices. Um going to conferences, even if you're not already a dermatology PA, pay your, out of your pocket and go to dermatology conferences and learn and network there. Read as much as you can. There are some textbooks that I love. Obviously, Fitzpatrick is an amazing textbook for general dermatology, but also um, Dr. Bauman has written t- uh, a few. Well, she's written a lot of books, but the, the two that I really like are Cosmetics and Cosmeceuticals, or I think it's called Cosm- Cosmeceutical Ingredients. I can't remember the name, but they're on my Amazon storefront. That's all about uh, cosmetic ingredients, so ingredients that come in skincare products. And then she also has a cosmetic dermatology textbook on procedures and things like that. So those are really good options if you are looking to get into aesthetics. Last question. Let's wrap it up with this one. What would I do if I weren't a PA? I think if I wasn't a PA, I would be either a cosmetic chemist or a beauty editor, which I realize are two very wildly different things, but they both nourish a different part of my brain. I think cosmetic chemistry is so interesting. Obviously, with a degree in biology, you do also have to take quite a bit of chemistry coursework. I think I was one class away from being a a chemistry minor, but I just couldn't bear to do another semester of it. Um, But I think cosmetic chemistry would be very, very interesting. And obviously, it would have to be cosmetics for me because the rest of chemistry is really of very little interest. And the other part of my brain, you know, that is not the more scientific portion is very creative and obviously beauty driven. So I think a beauty editor would be a really fun job. But honestly, I think that's kind of those sides of my brains are what uh, of my brain are what brought me here to this job where I'm a cosmetic dermatology GPA, but then also with such a heavy focus on skincare education and beauty online, I really am like kind of living my my two dream worlds wrapped up into one. So with that, thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you for being a part of my community. I appreciate every single one of you more than you'll ever know. I read as many DMs as I possibly can. And I just, I appreciate you for being here. I hope that you're learning something from me. And I hope that I'm I'm bringing some joy to your skincare routine. But know that you're bringing me just as much joy on the other end. And thank you for tuning in. And I will see you next week, skin enthusiasts. As always, if you have enjoyed this episode, please, please rate and review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps me get into the ears of other skin enthusiasts and those who want to be more knowledgeable about skincare. So together we can help them as well. Mm-hmm.